Luke 15. You know, Luke is just one of those uh, favorite chapters uh, that people uh, have when it comes to the Bible. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and of course the parable, uh, what we call the parable of the prodigal son. I've never uh, enjoyed calling it or appreciated calling it the parable of the prodigal son because the father in the story was far more prodigal than the son was. The word prodigal uh, means uh, extravagant. It means to, uh, to spend all that one has, to lavish upon somebody. And so, if you, if you look for negative connotations of that word, you can come up with what the younger son did. But I love the positive connotations of that word when it relates to the father. Nobody was more lavish in this story than the father. Nobody spent more or gave more or poured out more than the father did in this story. And this particular parable of Jesus says something to you and to me about the gospel, about God's heart, and about our heart this morning about our heart. Let's look at the characters just for a moment, remind ourselves. So you have the younger son, the rebellious one, the one who literally hates his father. He wishes his father was dead because the inheritance would not come to him until the father was. And he got tired of waiting for the father to die. And so he was the one who said, Father, give me my share now, he broke with what was protocol and tradition and sacred in that time and demanded the father give him something before it was due. Then you have the, the father, the, the one waiting for his son, the one full of mercy, rejoicing in his son's recovery, restoring him completely when he returns home. And then you have the older son. The brother, the one who's prideful and full of resentment and angry and unwilling to rejoice. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the older son is actually the main focus in this story. Jesus is telling this parable to people who he wants to have understanding about their relationship to people outside of their circle, or in this case, their very race. He wants to speak to them. And he wants them to locate themselves in this story. And that is they're going to find as they look at the older brother. Neither son clearly understood the heart of the father of his love both sons both sons lived under a spirit of slavery a spirit of slavery the bible in galatians uh, 4 and in romans 8 talks about how god has not given us a, a spirit of slavery but he's given us the spirit of adoption the holy spirit has come into us crying abba Father, when the Spirit enters into us, we are set in a new relationship with God the Father. 
We're released from the spirit of slavery. And we can be slaves in a couple of ways. We can be slaves to sin, to habits, behaviors, addictions, and things that hurt us and hurt other people. The things that stand out as moral evils. We can be slaves to greed and to pride. We can be slaves to, to, to lust and pornography or to gambling or to possessions or to whatever it might be. We can be slaves of sin, but we can also be slaves of religion. We can be slaves of religion. We can be slaves to rules and slaves to regulations by which we measure how good we are and how awful everybody else is. How self-righteous we are and how unrighteous everybody else is. The younger son, he was a slave to his passions and to his lust. And I'll tell you four things that are always true about anybody who's operating under a spirit of slavery. Number one, there's no joy. That's just a duh. <laughs> there is no joy. This younger son who's rejected the father, wasted all that he had, living in a pig pen, wanting to eat so badly he's willing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. I would suggest to you it is logical to assume there is no joy in his heart. Number two, he's lost his identity. He doesn't know who he is anymore. He's lost who he is. His only thought when he thinks about returning home is that I'll have to return home as a slave. I'll have to return home. Maybe my father will let me just be a hired worker and, and just tuck me in with the rest of those guys and ignore me. He'd lost his identity. He was impoverished. He'd lost everything. And the Scripture says that no one was giving him anything. He was impoverished. He's no joy. He's lost his identity. He is impoverished. And fourthly, he is uncomfortable with the idea of being in the Father's presence. He's uncomfortable with the idea of being in his Father's presence. He's got to get a speech together. He's got to get together what he's going to say. He doesn't expect the Father to welcome him. He doesn't expect the Father to bless him. He does not expect the Father to open his arms to him or to embrace him. That's not his expectation. His expectation is that he'll probably get turned away, but maybe, maybe he'll let me hire on as a slave. He was uncomfortable with the very idea of being in the Father's presence. And, and you see this. You see it worked out when he comes back to the Father in those verses where he says, Father, I'm, I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 19, I'll serve you as a slave. Just make me as one of your hired hands. I, I don't belong in your house. I don't belong in your presence. I don't belong in your good graces. Just make me as a, as a hired hand. I, I, I don't belong in your presence.
presence. But the Father, you see, the Father and our Father operates from the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. The grace of God is the grace of adoption. And you see it modeled out in how the Father welcomes the Son. He welcomes the Son and clothes Him in robes. He clothes Him in garments that would say, this is my Son. He doesn't put Him in the garments of a slave. He puts Him in garments of righteousness, if you will, and says by those garments, this is the relationship of this person to me. He is my Son, and I am welcoming Him home. He restores the son's authority. He puts a ring on his finger. You've heard me talk about this before. Many of you, that ring is a ring that would mean that he wore the family insignia. That insignia was dipped into wax and could seal official documents. The son was given authority again to trade and to buy and to use the father's resources. Father restored him. And he welcomed him with what? With feasting and rejoicing. He's just so glad to have his son home. And when we experience, when we experience the spirit of adoption, we experience the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us, we are filled with joy rather than joyless. We are restored to our true identity and who we are. We are replenished and we are enriched with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus and with an inheritance kept in heaven for us, undefiled, unpolluted, unfading, that is promised to us. And we are thrilled to be in the Father's presence We delight to pray and to talk to Him and to sing His praise and to listen to Him. And we're so glad when He says to us each Sunday, let's sit down now at table and let's feast and let's rejoice because you are mine. The older son, he was not living as a slave to sin, although his behavior was certainly Sinful, his slavery was the slavery of the religious. He was the slave of the religious. And here's the thing. The exact things that were true, the exact four things that were true of the younger son are also true of the older son. Number one, he has no joy. He has no joy. There's no joy. You can see it in his words, how he addresses the father. There's no joy in his relationship. To the Father, there's no joy in the redemption of His Son, the restoration of His Son. There's no joy in His heart. He's angry. He also doesn't, He's not in touch with His identity, with who He is in relationship to the Father. He weighed His relationship in terms of these I've kept the rules. I've done what you've said. I haven't run off like this younger son did. I didn't waste 
your money, I have towed the line. I have kept the rules. That's not a son. That's a hired hand. That's a slave. He was impoverished, wasn't he? He he was impoverished. He said, you've slain the fatted calf for this younger son, and and I I, I can't even get a, a goat to have with my friends. I've never been impressed with that idea of a goat for your friends, but that, you know, that's, well, yeah, I couldn't even get a goat to serve my friends. And the father is shocked. What do you mean? Everything I have is yours. You could have had 10 goats. You could have had 20 goats. You could have had that, you could have had that fatted calf if you'd asked for it yesterday. You could have had anything you want. All that I have is yours. But he didn't think in terms of how he was blessed. He didn't think in terms of the Father's generosity. He didn't think in terms of the Father's lavishness with which he loved his sons. He just knew that the rules had to be kept, and maybe if he was good enough, someone might notice. He was not at home in the Father's presence. He was not at home. He was not comfortable in the Father's presence. There's no joy. His relationship is reduced to rule-keeping. And so he remains outside, angry, prideful, unwilling to rejoice with the father in this younger son's homecoming. Jesus doesn't go back to the father. He leaves it with the father talking to the older son and saying to him, it is right that we should rejoice. Son, it is absolutely appropriate and it is right to rejoice because this son of mine who was lost has been found. He was dead and now he is alive. He's alive. What else can we do? It's entirely right to rejoice, but the older son is not shown to be turning or changing his mind. Jesus leaves it there. And so the question is, who is Jesus directing this parable to? Who's actually the recipients of this message? What's he getting at? Well, I, let, me, let me suggest there's three audiences that Jesus is talking to. Two then and one now. The audience he would have been talking to then It was a a message to the exclusively self-righteous. And so he's talking first, it's a message in general to the Jewish people of that day who took pride in their exclusivity as God's people. They were not thinking in terms of the promises of God to Abraham, the promises of bringing nations 
into relationship with God. They couldn't even imagine Gentiles and others being a part of what they enjoyed in their particular, wonderful, exclusive relationship with God. That younger son should not have been welcomed home. As good Jewish people, we would have held a funeral for him after he left, and he would have been considered dead. That was what they did. There is no thought of the blessing of Abraham extending to all nations. There is only the thought that we are his nation and no one else belongs. It's a message to them. It was a message to the scribes and to the Pharisees, these religious rulers who prided themselves not only in keeping rules, but making rules. They built rules upon rules upon rules. They took the Torah, they took the law of God, and then they built a whole system of rules and regulations on top of those laws and demanded that people keep those laws and keep those rules in order to be part of God's people. And yet, they did not have an ounce of compassion for those they were inflicting their rules upon. They did not care. Remember Jesus confronting Pharisees on a Sabbath day. Is it lawful to heal a man who's suffering? On the Sabbath, is it lawful to relieve him of his pain? No. Our rules do not permit any work. And that would be work. They would actually say to people, come back tomorrow. Come back later and let the Master touch you. Come back later and let Rabbi Jesus, bring healing to you. I understand your child is near the point of death, but just give it a couple of days and come back when it's lawful and when it's right to do that. If you are a scribe or a Pharisee standing by Jesus as He is telling that parable that day, I could almost guarantee you that as he talks about this older son, he is looking these folks square in the eyes. It is right that we should rejoice anytime someone comes into a relationship with the Father. But finally, the third people that message is for it's for you and me. It's a message for the church today. It's a message for the church in many, many places where the lost do not feel welcome, where the broken do not feel at home, when the person who is struggling 
with whatever it may be, struggling with alcoholism, struggling with a broken family, a broken marriage, suffering from domestic violence or sexual violence, suffering from memories and fears and a sense of failure, suffering because they're dealing with sexual attraction that they don't know what to do with, struggling because they are hurting and damaged, struggling because they have done things that the church famously protests vehemently against. And they have a hard time feeling welcome. They have a hard time believing that they could come out of that pigsty of their life situation and believe that there might be a place where they would have a chance to be loved, to be welcomed, to work it out, to learn, to grow without feeling that they didn't belong. That they didn't, they weren't sure we'd rejoice. They weren't sure that we'd be happy if they came and connected to us. Let, let me read you parts of, not the whole thing, but just parts of, I want to leave you with a couple of things this morning because we've been talking about the kind of heart that we need to have as a church, that we need to have a heart that is intent on restoring joy to people, helping them recover their identity of who they can be in Christ, showing them that they are not impoverished, but that they can be enriched and their life can be full and they can know meaning and purpose and genuine relationships and friendships in a group of people that will accept them and love them. They need to know that they could sit down at table with us and we would be glad to have them there. Is that our heart? Is that our heart? Listen, I think that probably if we were honest and someone dug down deep, we might discover that there's some harshness in us. We might discover there's a little Pharisaic attitude in us. I know there's a Pharisaic attitude in me. I'm religious and it makes me sick. So, Jeff, why would, you, why would you say that? Why would you say that you're religious and a Pharisee? I'll tell you why. Because I get more outraged by the bad things that people do than I do become vigorously engaged to see people rescued and brought into the kingdom. I spend more emotional energy on the issues that upset us all and that cause the church to be fearful 
that cause the church to be known much more for what we are against than what we are for. I expend more energy, I expend more emotional output fretting and frowning and smirking and judging and dismissing people who are in such slavery. Where is my heart? Where's my heart? Where's my love for them? Where is my compassion for them? Jesus was a man filled with compassion. If there's one thing I ever learned from Oral Roberts that I never forgot was this. He always would say that Jesus was filled with compassion. And he would always say, compassion is the intense, eternal desire to rid somebody of what is damaging them. Jesus looked on the people of his day and he felt compassion for them. They were sheep without a shepherd. They were blind. They were hungry. They were needy. They were lost. They didn't know who they were. There was no joy of the kingdom in that place. And he said, I'm here to change that. I'm here to restore hope. I'm here to restore love. I'm here to restore joy to people. And I fear that I am the kind of person, if you really got inside me, that I'd hang around with a rock in my hand when everybody else left that woman in adultery. Pick your sin and insert it there. I don't want to be that guy. Any other Pharisees out there? You don't have to raise your hand, just... Question, any other, any other, thank you. Any other Pharisees out there? Any other Pharisaical attitudes out there? Any self-righteous, upset, this terrible, sick, awful world that we live in? Look at what those people are doing. How can she do that? How can he do that? What is she doing? What is he doing? Who do they think they are? God will not tolerate this. I would, let me say something. You're right. God will not tolerate it. He wants to change it. And He wants to bring people to life. Okay. I, I got to stop. Let me... I, I, I've included this um, lengthy uh, uh, quote from J.C. Ryle he was talking about this. Let me read just a last part of this, and then I want you to listen, and we're going to finish with Tim Keller's words on this as well. So listen. He says, It makes angels rejoice in heaven, the conversion of souls. It ought to make Christians rejoice on earth. What if those who were converted were lately the vilest of the vile? What if they have served sin and Satan for many long years and wasted their substance in riotous living? It matters nothing. Has grace come into their hearts? 
Are they truly penitent? Have they come back to their father's house? Are they new creatures in Christ Jesus? Are the dead made alive and the lost found? These are the only questions that we should be asking. Let the self, let the worldly, if they please, mock and sneer at such conversions. Let the self-righteous, if they will, murmur and find fault and deny the reality of all great and sudden changes. But let the Christian who reads the words of Christ in this chapter, remember them and act upon them. Let him thank God and be merry. Let him praise God that one more soul is saved. Let him say, this my brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is now found. What are our own feelings on the subject? Get ready, JC is going to smack you. What are our own feelings on the subject? This, after all, is the question that concerns us most. The man who can take deep interest in politics or field sports or money-making or farming, but none in the conversion of souls is no true Christian. He is himself dead and must be made alive again. He is himself lost and must be found. That's painful. I'll, I'll, I own it. I own it. Oh, how much energy I spend on some of the things he talked about there. But often won't lift a finger to share Christ with somebody else. Let me bring it to a modern application here. Tim Keller in talking about this parable of the prodigal. Father, he talks about the younger son and the older brother. And I want you to listen because when, if, if we're going to be praying, and, and next week we're going to introduce some things to you. There are some prayer initiatives coming up for this church. There are some gospel sharing initiatives, some train, evangelism training coming up for this church. And, but we have to break up the fallow ground. We have to break, this is what I've been talking about for weeks. We have to break up the fallow ground of our hearts. We have to recognize where we're hard, recognize where we're pharisaical, recognize where we have lost our compassion for people, we have to own it and we have to ask God to change it. Otherwise, all we will attract to us are older brothers. All we'll attract to us are older brothers. Listen, quoting Keller, the way to know that you are communicating and living the same gospel message of Jesus is that younger brothers are more attracted to you than elder brothers. This is a very searching test because almost always our churches are not like that. The kind of people attracted to Jesus are not attracted to us. We only attract conservative, button-down, moral people, the licentious, the liberated, the broken, the people out of the mainstream very much despise us. And that can only mean one thing. We may think we understand the gospel of Jesus, but we don't. If we don't see the same effect Jesus saw, then we lack the same message Jesus had. If our churches aren't filled with younger brothers, 
then we must be more like the elder brother than we like to think. Do you need to own that this morning? Do we need to own that this morning? Maybe to different degrees. I can't speak for all of you. I can just speak for me. But as a church, I know I want to be a place that the younger brothers say, I will get up and I'm going to go over there. There's joy to be found there. There is an identity to be recovered. There is, there is fullness to be restored. And there is a feast eternally in the Father's presence. Can we be the church that attracts the younger brothers? Listen, we can be a church for the older brother. All I got to do is get up here and rail against the evils of society every Sunday. And if I rail against them enough, we'll start attracting people who are, that's how they're wired. That's how they think. That's what their focus is. If everybody will just shape up and quit being evil and be good and righteous like us, the world would be a better place. But am I going to go befriend one of those people? Not on your life. Let's ask Jesus to make us a church with a heart that attracts the younger brothers and sisters. Can we do that?